This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith in that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before we begin our study of the Word this morning, let's bow our heads together. Father, we're so thankful that we have your Word, that we read through your Scriptures, and again and again, we are challenged to make your Word our priority. We are to read it, we are to think about it, reflect it, reflect upon it. We are to internalize it. We are to talk about it. We're to memorize it. All of these things, and yet we find so many distractions in our lives that somehow always seem to get in the way, but that is part of uh, the test that we have to make this our priority that knowing you comes only through knowing your word. That is how you have planned it. And that we can only know your word in this dispensation uh, by walking through, walking by means of your spirit, who opens our minds to understand what you have revealed to us. So now, Father, as we continue this study of what it means to walk worthy, to walk by means of love, uh, to walk in the light, to live out our Christian life in a way that honors and glorifies you. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would open our understanding to what your word teaches. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 10 through 12 today. And the key theme is that we are not to partner with darkness. And that is a real challenge for a lot of people. Uh, we think can think about this in def- different levels. Well, just what do you mean by partnering? And so we need to explore that just a little bit. And remember, this is written to the folks in Ephesus uh, in the ancient world, and this was a city that was filled with all sorts of uh polytheistic religions, as well as the influence of uh, what we would describe today as secular humanistic philosophy, all sorts of ideas, not to mention the distortions that came from uh, groups of some Jews that would have sought to uh, infiltrate the teaching of the churches with the Mosaic Law. And so their culture, like our culture, was one where you get up, you go about your daily business, and you're constantly going to be rubbing shoulders with, doing business with uh, people who are unbelievers and people who promote ideas and values and operate on a worldview totally different from a biblical worldview. So this is not calling upon a complete separation uh, out of the world, which is how some people take some of these passages, but it does talk about a certain level of separation that must occur between the believer and those who are within a sphere where they would be influential in their thinking or in the way in which they conduct their, uh, their lives and their, their business. So we have to understand what this means. Last week, we looked at the question, well, how do we walk or how do we uh, live by means of the light? That's the basic command that begins this section back in 
back in chapter 5, that we are to walk by means of the light. And the answer that I gave last week is that we are the Word of God is to be used by the Spirit of God to mature the child of God. That's it. It's the Word of God with the Spirit of God. When we just focus on the Word of God without understanding the role of the Spirit of God, we can end up in some sort of legalism. And it's a, a self-effort to just make the Scripture just a knowledge of the Bible without a relationship with God. If you try to emphasize the Spirit of God over the Word of God, you end up in the charismatic Pentecostal movement because you've, re, you've distorted the significance of the relationship with the Holy Spirit, and you've minimized the significance of the Word of God as a a closed canon of Scripture. That means that there was a time when there was revelation given by God, and that time ceased. And so no longer is God revealing himself by word in new Scriptures or through individual believers with various uh, miraculous gifts or supernatural gifts that were available only in the, in the early church. So we have to recognize it's a combination of the Word of God and the Spirit of God working to mature the thinking of the child of God. And this isn't something that happens in a week or a month or a year. Uh, A significant amount of maturity should be expected, or let me rephrase that and say a certain amount of spiritual growth should be expected within a period of a few years. And I base that on the fact that it had been three years uh, since Paul first went to Corinth when he writes to them and says, you should be mature by now. So that was an apostolic expectation. Now, that doesn't mean that you're, um, you have the maturity of someone who's been in the Word for 20 or 30 or 40 years. Uh, you have a certain level of maturity, we hope and pray, at the age of 20 or 22 or 25, but you're certainly not at the level of maturity of somebody who has many more life experiences and has uh, lived uh, many more decades than a 20-year-old. So it takes time. You don't just say, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do and go out and do it. In some areas you can, but in other areas it will be a lifetime of struggle. In Galatians 5.16 Paul writes, I say then, walk by means of the Spirit, and you shall not bring to completion the lusts of the flesh. And so this is an important aspect, that it is done by means of God the Holy Spirit. And a few verses later, uh, he lists various character qualities that are produced in a person's life as a result of that walk by by the Spirit. When you get into John chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples that he said, I am the vine, you are the branches, that the one who abides in me will bear much fruit. And so then by the time he gets to verse 7, he says, if you abide in me, and then he connects it to what has been revealed. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then just... um, a couple of chapters later, as he's praying to the Father, he prays, Father, sanctify them or set them apart by means of truth. And then he defines truth, something very difficult for our generation, our culture to define today is truth. It's almost as difficult uh, for them to define what a woman is as to define truth. We are to go to the Word of God. Only God, who is omniscient and the creator of all things and has made everything the way it is, can speak accurately and truthfully to everything. He has made us with the psychology that we have. He has made us uh, to be social creatures, and so there is um, there are things that he has set forth that should be at the core of any cultural sociology. 
but they will not be discovered or taught in any sociology course that you get in college. They are what we refer to as the divine institutions. That is the emphasis on individual responsibility, responsible choice. The second is marriage between one man and one woman together for life. Uh, Third is family. Fourth is government. Fifth is nations. Sixth is to support Israel, because anyone who supports Israel, God will bless, and it's not dependent upon their uh, their spiritual status. And so what we see here is it's it's the word of God that is at the center of everything because it comes from the God who created everything the way it is. And only by going to his, to his revelation are we able to understand reality as he created it. Romans 12.2 tells us that we are to be transformed by renewing our mind, by renewing our thinking, that you come to Christ, you come to the cross, whether you're six years old, as I was, or whether you are 60 years old, as some have been in this congregation, then it takes, uh, you have a certain amount of baggage. And even if you come to Christ early and you grow up where you are in a Christian home taught biblical principles and in a solid church that teaches biblical principles, it's amazing how much garbage your sin nature will suck up from the surrounding culture like a magnet to iron filings. And, um, and even though you, we struggle against that, we have picked up all of these ideas. So there has to be a complete overhaul of how we think and what, what we think. Both are important. You have a lot of people today that still think within a modernist or postmodernist way of thinking. They are epistemological modernists, and they try to force the Bible into that framework, and it doesn't work. They are epistemological postmodernists, and they come along and they say, well, God must want me to do this because that's how I, I feel better when I do that. That's paganism. That is not biblical. But we have to transform our thinking. Philippians 2.16 says not only do we need to learn the word of God, but we need to hold fast to the word of life. And then in Colossians 1.5, it tells us again that the word we are to, um, uh, we have a hope laid up for us in heaven, uh, which we heard about from the word of truth in the gospel. There's that dirty word for our culture, the word truth. And uh, it was interesting. There was somebody here not long ago visiting that came to an understanding that we must understand and take the Bible as a whole to be true or false. You can't just take parts of it. It's either totally true, all of it, or it's not. There's no middle road. And then you have to come to grips with where you stand in relation to that reality. Are you going to make God's word the focal point of your life? And that may take some time. And, um, but we have to understand that it is God's word that is what illuminates our thinking. I close with Psalm 119, 105 last week, that your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. And elsewhere, the psalmist says, it's in your light that we see light. And so when we go to God's word, it illuminates all of the cracks and crevices in our thinking so that we can begin to change how we think. It's going to change our values. We're going to have a different set of of ideas about what is right and what is wrong. Uh, it may change also our uh, how we view everything around us, how we view business, how you view uh, social relationships. It may change how you view uh, everything that you touch, how you handle money. Uh, everything will change because you realize that God has said certain things about a right way and a wrong way to do uh, everything in life. 
And so we have to submit to God's word. So as we've gotten into Ephesians, just by way of review, we've seen this structure of the wealth, the walk, and the warfare. The first part talks about the wealth of the believer, that if you're a believer in Christ, at that instant, God gives you an untold number of blessings. We have been blessed, Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, with every spiritual blessing. We cannot even come close to enumerating those blessings. And then on the basis of understanding who, who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ, we are to live a certain way. And that's the second section from uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 1 down to 6, 9, or 4, actually 4, 1 down to 6, 9. That's a typo. I need to fix that. Uh, and then warfare, we're to put on the whole armor of God. So he says in 4.1 that we are to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. That's a standard. He uh, illuminates that in Ephesians 5.2 by saying we would walk by means of love. And that tells us that all that Paul has said in Ephesians 4 and 5 down to 6.9 defines love because this is a worthy walk, and a worthy walk is a walk by means of love. So everything that he is saying here is going to be part of what it means biblically to love one one another. And then we get down to 5.8, where he says, For you all were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's our new identity, our new position. We are light. And he says to walk in light. So one thing we see from that is that we don't have to walk as light to be light. We're already light because we have trusted in Christ as Savior. So that's our new identity and our new position. But we have to live consistent with our new identity. 5.9 tells us what the production of that light is. I've talked about the fact that there is a textual variant, spirit, or light, different translations. But ultimately, I've pointed out that they come up with basically the same thing because we walk in the light and we walk by means of the spirit both produce fruit, so it's a, they're equivalent statements. And then there's three character qualities there, just summarizing more of this character transformation that the Holy Spirit produces over time. And then when we get to verse 10, which is what we're beginning this morning, there's a statement there that it needs to be carefully understood uh, because when we get down there, we have translations like discerning what is the uh, what is pleasing to the Lord or acceptable to the Lord. Uh, New King James says finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. But that word at the beginning is very important to understand it and to understand what it means grammatically because it it's very practical. And so we will take care of that. So as we talk about light, we've covered these Four things, we're talking more on the fourth one now, uh, what the Bible teaches about light, spent a couple of Sundays on that. Second, what the Bible teaches about our position in the light, we looked at that uh, the last couple of lessons. Third, what the Bible teaches about our walk in the light, which was last week, and also what the, what the Bible teaches about how, how we walk. Now, what I want to do to start with here is to look at this whole section. It begins in verse 8 and goes down through verse 14. And I want to point out a couple of things. Uh, We've read this many times, but I'll read it one more time. The more you read it, the more you're going to see certain things that are going on in the text. It's very important. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So let's just look at a couple of things here. In this second slide, I have uh, changed the color to blue for words that relate to light. 
And you see that it begins with the statement that we are light in the Lord and we are to then to walk as children of light. But I want to direct your attention to the end of verse 14 where the, the clause says, and Christ will give you light. And in between, we have light mentioned at least uh, two times, maybe three times. What do you think he's talking about in this section? I like to ask these kinds of questions because when you read your Bible, you need to be asking yourself similar questions. Like, well, what is he saying here? Uh, what, what are the key words? What, what's repeated? Things of that nature. In contrast, he's going to talk about darkness. Now, I've underlined darkness and words that relate to the darkness. So he says in verse 8, you once were darkness. Then when you get down to verse 11, he says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. So he's he's talking about the unfruitful works of darkness. And then he says, rather expose them. Well, the them isn't in the original. You'll notice that in your Bible, it's probably italicized because it uh, just states, but expose. And it's, it's understood what he's talking about and or it should be. And he's not talking about people. He's talking about the unfruitful works that we are to expose, not to expose the people who are doing them, uh, unless, of course, it's criminality, something like that. But I'm, what I'm saying here is we don't go around like a bunch of busybodies trying to get into everybody's life and talking about whatever it is they are they are doing wrong. And then in verse 12, it says, for it's Shameful even to speak of those things, that those things refers back to the unfruitful works of darkness. And then 5.13 says, but all things that are exposed, that relates to the darkness, fruit of darkness again. And then he says in verse 14, awake you who sleep. Those who sleep are those who are walking in darkness and are in darkness, are walking in darkness, are maybe spiritually dead, but in this passage in the contents, he's talking to believers who are uh, not walking in the light. And he says, arise from the dead. So they're walking like unbelievers, and they're living like unbelievers, so they're walking in darkness, but they are not darkness. And then we get to other words that have something to do with what light does. Light exposes things. If you are into photography you have and you like to develop your own film, which is almost a thing of the past today, although I have uh, one longtime friend, he, since high school he was the photographer for the yearbook, and he still has film and he still likes to do things the old way. But you walk into a dark room, and if you don't do it correctly, and light comes in there, it's going to expose all the film, and you have a problem. That's what light does. It exposes things. And so that's part of what happens here, is that we're to expose things. That's verse 11. But that's what happens as a result of a walk. And these are commands. So I put an exclamation point there. We're to walk as children of light. When we do that, we will expose those works of darkness, not the people. That, that Sometimes people read this, and they say, well, I'm supposed to go around and expose all the things that are going wrong. No, that's not necessarily the way you should take that in terms of people. But when it's ideologies or philosophies or false teaching, yes, we need to understand things well enough to expose the evil that is there in those ideas. Uh, 5.13 talks about all things that are exposed, what exposes them in the light, are made manifest by the light. And for whatever makes manifest is light. Light brings about that exposure, and light, of course, is the truth. And then there's the command to awake and to arise. And this is not addressed to unbelievers, but to believers, so it has to do with uh, the spiritual life. So as we look through these as well with these these commands, the command to walk and the command uh, 
the command to expose and the command to uh, awake are all present active imperatives. Now, that's important grammatically. A present imperative is emphasizing something that this should be your standard course of action. This is what you do as a result of walking in the light of God's Word. But the word arise from the dead is punctuated. It is in the aorist tense, and an aorist imperative is designed to emphasize something that you need to start doing. So this is uh, slightly different to wake them up. So last time we saw in our chart here that we are in light. The left circle represents light, and by the baptism by the Holy Spirit, we are placed into Christ. So we are now light in the Lord. That's our identity. That's our new position. We are legally forever and ever light. But we don't always live that way. So the right side is has the circle, the white circle, is when we're being obedient, walking by the Spirit. We're being filled by the Spirit with the Word of God. And then when we sin, we go out of the circle of light, and we're living, thinking, acting in darkness. And first of all, in terms of recovery, we have to confess sin, 1 John 1, 9. So we come to the next verse here, finding out what is acceptable uh, to the Lord. Now, on its surface, I think most people can get a fairly decent uh, grip on what this is saying, but it's important to take the words uh, apart a little bit because they are they are quite significant. Uh, before I get that, I want to go through a couple of other things here. Um, So as we look at this contrast between light and darkness, we need to recognize this consciously. I think we need to, as we live our lives and as we think about things, as you hear news reports, as you read through magazines, as you watch a film, you think about, is this light? Is this darkness? Where's the light? Where's the darkness? Everything is one way or the other. And we need to think in terms of these categories. And the way of the world and the devil's world is that's just the world of darkness and, the, and, their, and their values. Um, the command here that we are to walk is a, is a word that is just summarizes the entirety of our life. How we think, how we talk, how we act. It has to do with our values. It has to do with how we apply those values in every every area of life. So we are to uh, walk in the light. And we do this under the power of the God, the Holy Spirit. Those are comparable terms. And as a result of living in light of God's Word, walking by the Spirit, then God, the Holy Spirit, is going to gradually begin to transform our character into the character of Christ. And then what happens is that we are to be investigating the various issues of life in order to make some evaluations. And that's what this first word means, finding out. It is a word of investigation or study. This first word is dokimazo, We've run into that, and it's uh, various forms, noun forms, adjectival forms as we study. But it is a, it originally was a word that was used um, when you were smelting metal. Uh, you would have uh, a lot of rock, and embedded in the rock would be, uh, would be ore. And what you're trying to do is to burn off or get rid of all of the stuff that isn't iron or some other metal, and purify it, burn off the dross so that you're left with the metal that is of value. So you're not trying to expose the garbage, you're trying to expose that which has value. It's used in the passage in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 12 through 16, which is talking about the judgment seat of Christ. And then the picture there of taking all of our works and burning them is used Uh, This word or form of this word is used there for evaluation. You're exposing what has value, and you're getting rid of what doesn't have value. So it's a term that comes to mean evaluation. 
uh, to approve something, to evaluate or think about or investigate or scrutinize something uh, to determine what is beneficial, what is good, and what is of value. And so it involves more than just passively going through life, but we are to be evaluating everything that comes into our lives to determine what is, and then the other word is pleasing or acceptable to the Lord. Now, if you look at either one of those words, they have to do with conforming to some standard. So before we can ever talk about doing something that pleases the Lord or is acceptable to the Lord, we have to understand something about uh, what is, what are those standards? What is the standard that he has set forth? What are the values that you have in Scripture? And that opens up a whole can of worms, because if you listen to certain liberal theologians, they will pick and choose certain statements that they take out of context, uh, notably out of the Sermon on the Mount or other passages, uh, that have nothing to do with what they say they do, but they just yank this passage out, out, out of Scripture, and then they um, then they impose that on every everything around them without any understanding of what the what the context is or what is meant by those particular verses. So we have to understand who Jesus is. We have to understand the standards of Scripture. We have to understand the differences between spiritual life and spiritual death. We have to understand that there are things that are expected of individuals and things that may be expected of a nation. Often what happens is people take commands that are related to an individual and they apply them to a nation, which is not correct. So it's difficult. How do you determine what is pleasing or what is acceptable to the Lord. It's not based on how you feel. It's not based on some kind of uh, little inner vibration, some liver quiver, but it's based on knowing what the Word of God says. So once again, it drives us back to knowing Scripture. So we have to evaluate something. That means we have to look at whatever it is we're evaluating and come to know it well enough to where we can make certain assessments related to Scripture. So even though this sounds like a simple statement to find out what is acceptable to the Lord, it takes some effort and work and study to be able to make these kinds of judgments. Now, when we um, look at this word dakimazo, we find it in another important passage, which is Romans 12.2. In Romans 12.2, Paul says, do not be conformed. That word means to be pressed into the mold of the world. And the world relates in many ways to uh, Satan's entire system of thought, which opposes God but it also reflects itself in different forms of human cultures. Uh, different nations, different peoples have different cultures, but what informs most of those cultures uh, in many ways are false philosophies and false religions and false values. And so uh, we are pressured by the devil's world to conform to the cultural norms now, that used to be really difficult in some areas of the United States because they had a, a, a veneer of biblical Christianity, maybe a history of biblical Christianity. And so people thought that if they just went through the motions, that they were doing it. Uh, that's being stripped away because the culture as a whole has really shifted into a postmodern paganism now. And so you ought to be able to really tell, tell the difference. We don't want to be pressed into a mold that makes emotions the criteria for what's right or wrong. That's part of postmodernism. We don't want to be pressured into a mold that uh, makes things such as uh, Darwinian evolution part of the uh, makeup of the um, of our intellectual furniture. Uh, so we have to avoid being pressured to conform to the worldview around us but we are to be transformed 
by the renewing of our thinking. So it tells us again, and there are many passages to support this, that the Christian life is not a life of feeling. It's not a life of emoting. It's a life of thought. Uh, It's a life of investigation. It's a life of study. It's a life of learning what God has said to us and then conforming to that. And the purpose of that is that we may prove, and here's our word again. It's a different form of the word. It's an infinitive here, but it has the same sense that so that we can evaluate, so that we can prove, so that we can uh, investigate something to with the ultimate purpose of showing that God's will is good and acceptable and complete or sufficient. So that's, that's part of the Christian life. There are many places where we have, have this particular word. Now, one other thing I want to say about verses 8 through 10 in order for us to be able to catch what is being said here. Verse 9, as you see in the New King James translation, is set off as a parenthesis. Other translations will set it off in other ways, but it's understood that this is a parenthetical explanation as indicated by the opening word for. So the command that is given is walk as children of light, and then there's this explanation. So to catch the main clause here and the main thought, let's just take verse 9 out. And what we see in verse 8 is the command, walk as children of light. And then verse 10 starts in the Greek with the participle, but the function of that participle is to explain how, something about how you walk as a child of light, uh, one of the characteristics of it. So this would be a, a participle of means or manner. How do you walk? You walk by, how do you walk in the light? You walk in the light by evaluating to determine what is acceptable to the Lord. So that is one dimension of the walk in the light. So the standard that we use, uh, if we're going to say, well, am I walking in the light? One standard we use is, well, am I evaluating the issues in my life according to the standard of God's word so that I can make decisions that will conform to the righteousness and justice and love of God. So you see, finding out what is pleasing to the Lord or what is acceptable to the Lord has a lot more to it. It is a very deep topic. Now in verse 11, we're going to see a contrast. The contrast with the negative, the positive was walk uh, as a child of light by evaluating the issues and determining what is acceptable to the Lord. And then the contrast in verse 11 is a command, a prohibition. And the prohibition is do not have fellowship or have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather expose them. So we have two clauses here. The first clause, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. And the second is a contrast, but rather expose them. So we'll take them one at a time. In the first one, you have this word translated fellowship, but it's not the normal word koinonia. It is the word soon koinonia. Now, This may seem like I'm getting into the weeds. I'll try not to get the spade out and go too deep. But I've said this many, many times over the last couple of years, that the word fellowship, biblically, is not a word that means having a social involvement with other Christians. It doesn't mean having social involvement with God. It's not a... It's not just a passive state. It is something that is an active participation in a partnership directed towards achieving a common goal. So we have uh, we have fellowship. We enjoy fellowship, biblical fellowship with somebody when we are working together toward a common goal that is that is biblical. You can do that in many environments. You can do that in work. You work with, uh, 
you know, a secular job. You can be with an engineering firm, and you have others in the engineering firm that are believers, and you all recognize that you are to do all things to the glory of God. So as believers, your work, your that that career that you have that God has given you uh, is a means by uh, as a dimension of your partnership, fellowship with other believers who are seeking to glorify God through that which they are producing. That's biblical fellowship. The emphasis is not on association. The emphasis is on the, really on that ulti- pursuing that ultimate goal. Now, why did I say all of that? Because that's the word koinonia. And I made an important statement. I said the focus is not on association. So if you want the emphasis to be on association, what do you have to do? You have to put a prefix soon on koinonia, which makes it association with someone or others. So here it is soon koinonia, which also has that idea of being a partner toward a common goal, but it emphasizes that that there's an association element to what is being talked about. So it's saying do not associate in partnership with the unfruitful works of darkness. Notice it did not identify this in terms of people, but in terms of production. Okay? Now, that's, that's really more complex. It's real easy for you to say, well, you know, I'm not going to do certain things with so-and-so. They're, number one, they're not a believer. Number two, if they are a believer, they're, they're just uh, really liberal. They don't understand how to do things from a biblical perspective. Uh, it's not saying you can't do anything with them, but you don't want to participate in the production of that which fits with the works of darkness. That means you have to think more profoundly about what it is that you are doing. You have to you have to evaluate it. Are you trying? Are you involved with an organization that is trying to achieve goals that is really contrary to what Scripture teaches? So that's the idea that don't have that kind of associative partnership. It is more than just a sort of a superficial social involvement. But to get further understanding of this, I want to take us to the passage we read earlier this morning, and that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 down to 18. And this is a fascinating passage, and I don't think I've talked enough about it over the years, and I certainly don't think that a lot of pastors do. But it starts off in verse, uh, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, and what fellowship or partnership has light with darkness? The expected answer is none, zero, nada, yet. None. There's no compatibility there whatsoever. So we have to understand something about what does it mean unequally yoked? So we're going to have some help from that. So he says, um, gives these different examples. Now you have five different synonymous words or phrases in these verses. The first is this word, era sugeo. Now if you look at that word in the Greek, it's hetero. I think when I copied it, I left out the uh, rough breathing mark. It's, uh, it comes from hetero sugeo. Now, hetero means uh, something of a different kind, like heterosexual, male and female. There's differences. Homosexual is the same. Uh, homogenized milk, you homogenize. Homo means to, it's, it's this of, a, of the same kind. This is of a different kind. And it's zugeo, which is where we get our word zygote uh, in English. But it as how it's used is what's important. It had to do with that which was mismated or the, uh, put together in a wrong way. It was often used or probably originated in an agricultural scenario where you are taking uh, perhaps 
uh, a horse or an, and an ox and trying to yoke them together to pull a wagon. You're going to have difficulties. They're different sized animals. They're going to walk at a different gait. They don't fit together. You want to have the two of the same kind of animals that pulling a wagon that are that are yoked together. So they they need to be matched together. This is parallel to the re- repetition of the question in slightly other ways, which says, for what partnership? I've translated it partnership. It's translated fellowship in the New King James, but it's not koinonia. That's why I've translated it differently. It's metoke. And this is a close synonym to fellowship. It emphasizes the partnership aspect, Medicaid. So it has to do with a partnership, a participation. And it says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? These are opposites. You can't put them together. You can't yoke them together. They should not be associated. The third is in the third question, and what fellowship, and here it's koinonia, what fellowship has light with darkness? Many times I've used the illustration, you go deep in the ground in one of the big caverns that are available in various uh, state parks and national parks, and you turn out all the lights. It's absolutely black. You light just one little match, and it's no longer black. It's illuminated. It's one or the other. They're mutually exclusive. That's what unequally yoked means. They, they, you've got, you're trying to put two things together that are mismatched and mutually exclusive, righteousness and lawlessness. Or you can't mix them. Fellowship, uh, I mean, dark, darkness and light, you can't mix them. Then it goes to verse 15, continues. What accord does Christ have with Belial? Now, Belial was a, a, a really... Um, uh, negative term that was generated in the uh, Old Testament for sometimes it was applied to Satan, but it emphasizes the, the, the destroyer, the one who destroys things. And so it, it was used as a nickname for Satan. So the question is, what accord has Christ with Satan? So the word for accord is the word uh, symphonesis, where we get our word symphony where you have a a multitude of instruments that are playing together in perfect harmony. So it's saying, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Absolutely none. And then the last is what part or meris. We've studied this word many times in the past. It It was a technical legal term that refers to a share of an inheritance, for example, in a will. And so here it's the idea what inheritance has a believer with an unbeliever. Absolutely none. It's talking about being the, what Romans 8 talks about and being heirs of God. And then we get to the 16th verse. It says, so what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And so the word here is a different word. It's soon katathesis, and it has to do with a union. Now, remember, we studied this a lot in Ephesians chapter 2, that in this church age, God the Holy Spirit is bringing together Jew and Gentile at the cross to create this new man. The new man in Ephesians uh, 2, 14 and following, is also said to be a new body, a new building, and lastly, a new temple. So this is a talking about you Corinthians in your local church are being built together as a new temple. This is talking about you as believers within this new entity, the body of Christ, are the temple of God. So what union is there with the temple of God with idols? It's, they're mutually exclusive. And then he goes on to say, for you, you all, For y'all are the temple of the living God, not just their individual. We have to understand this in the light of the context of, of what Paul has been teaching. It's not talking about the individual local church as a temple, but as the body of Christ as a temple. And then there's a series of quotations that come out of the Old Testament. And you say, well, what does that have to do with it? 
Well, I'm not going to go into all the details, but there are four different ways in which New Testament writers will quote the Old Testament based on a pattern that was set and discovered by, by the rabbis. So you have all four examples in Matthew 2. And so the third one is sort of summary, um, or, or it's, it's application, excuse me. The third one is application, and what is happening is, is that Paul is going back and he's picking certain phrases out of the Old Testament, and he is applying them, saying the same kind of thing is going on here, and so he cites these, but I'm not going to get off into all of that. So these are the contrasts that we have in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 15. You have on the left column, righteousness, light, Christ, believer, and temple of God. And on the right, you have the contrast, lawlessness, darkness, belial, unbeliever, and idol. So what we see here is that this concept of light is related to and parallel to righteousness, Christ, believer in this new temple of God, and the idea of darkness is related to lawlessness, belial, unbeliever, and idols, and these are mutually exclusive spheres. And there's not to be a partnership in w- between those spheres. Now, this is frequently violated by believers who marry unbelievers. And and some get involved in missionary dating. Maybe they didn't know any better. I don't know. When my first church, I had never heard of, I mean, my mother made such a big deal about this when I was growing up that I knew that if I ever was going to go out with a girl, I had to know exactly how she was saved, when she was saved, and what she believed. I couldn't have any close friends otherwise. So... um but I, I went to my first church and I discovered, and it, it, it was an older congregation, and none of their kids were there. But they all lived in the in the in the city. It was Lamarck, a small town down near Galveston. They all all their kids lived there, but they had all married unbelievers. No pastor had ever taught them that you are not supposed to date and marry unbelievers, and he didn't enforce it in his in his. Uh, and I knew him later; he was much older. But um, he never never enforced that. So these are the issues that are important here. The Bible is talking about uh, a separate, uh, separate understanding that we are to separate ourselves from the world around us. So Ephesians 5.11 that talks about this says we are not to have this fellowship. Now I've got to, I'm going to skip a couple of slides, so I've got to get back to where I should be. And here we are. Ephesians 5.11 says, uh, Do not fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them, but rather expose them. And that word rather is indicated by this Greek word malone, which says, in contrast. On the one hand, we are not to have an intimate partnership with the that which produces the works of, of darkness. But instead, we are to expose them. It's a contrast. And how do we expose them? The word there is to reprove or convict or to refute something. And we're to do it a certain way. And in Proverbs, it talks about the fact that a an arrogant person will often go around trying to correct someone and just cause problems. So you have to understand that there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And a uh, right way to do it is to not be involved in the first place. And we have to recognize that when we get to the next verse, verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Now, what we see when we talk about the unfruitful works of darkness is that this can involve things that are moral or immoral can involve things that are legal or illegal. It can involve things that are acceptable or unacceptable. Uh, But all of them are unfruitful because they derive from a worldview that is described as darkness. 
and all pagan worldviews, all worldviews that are not biblical, are pagan. Uh, and they are all part of darkness. And that involves uh, the moral relativism and situational ethics that even many Many believers who have some level of maturity are still infected with this. I hear things all the time out of mouths of believers that are, you would think, somewhat mature and knowledgeable, but this infection from our culture is more than skin deep. We have enlightenment concepts such as uh, the independent authority of reason or experience, these enlightenment concepts. We are deeply infected in our culture with Kantian subjectivity, that we only know what we perceive, and we perceive it one way, and somebody else perceives it another way, and so we can't really get to absolute truth. We have uh, the emotional subjectivism that comes out of that, and that was part of the uh, liberalism that developed from the early 19th century in America, where you really can't know truth. All we can do is know what we feel, and that validates truth. That's the essence of what Friedrich Schleiermacher was saying in Germany in the early 19th century. And now we're seeing that come to uh, full fruition. You have the development of Hegelianism and its byproduct Marxism, which goes by the um, limited term wokeism today. All of this is part of a pagan worldview, and they produce the unfruitful works of darkness. So we can't participate in those things or anything that produces that. We have to exercise discernment. Now, life is not simple. Life is complex. We're all involved in all kinds of different things, and you have different careers and all kinds of things. And that's why you as an individual have to, between you and the Lord, have to evaluate what is pleasing to the Lord and make your decision. Nobody else can make that decision for you because it's not something that is simple. It's not something that you can just uh, easily uh, pinpoint. You have to determine where you are and what's going on around you and what level of responsibility you have for the production of whatever it is your your business or your job or whatever produces. And these are the same problems that you that people in Corinth face, that believers in Corinth face, believers in Ephesus face, believers in Rome face, and they didn't just they didn't take what became the early middle age solution which was monasticism to leave the culture and go live out in the desert somewhere. You have to learn, and that comes only in your walk with the Lord, how to apply these things. And it's, uh, you know, nobody else can make that decision for you, and it, it just calls upon you to make that decision before the Lord. So that's what this passage is talking about. Now, next time we're going to come back and go to verses 13 and 14, uh, which are of great significance as well, and then begins to set the stage for what we get into in verses 15 to 21, the core of which is what does it mean to be filled by means of the Spirit? So we're working our way through one of the most significant passages in the New Testament for how to live the spiritual life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study through these things to understand that a lot of times these issues are, are complex, they're difficult. And there, sometimes there's, um, there's not just a one-size-fits-all answer, but we have to look at it in the light of your word, and we have to pray about these decisions, and we have to evaluate the circumstances and make the decisions uh, in the light of your word that are pleasing and acceptable to you. Father, we are not to live as those who have no hope. We are not to live as those who are in darkness. There is a difference. and But there are too many people who want to make this simple and go to extremes. So we have to be cautious and careful and do this in, on the basis of a solid understanding of your word. 
Father, we want to make it clear that if anyone's listening to this message here or online, that we're talking about how a Christian is supposed to live, not how someone becomes a Christian. We become a Christian in one simple way. We trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. We must uh, believe that he is who he says he is, that is the eternal Son of God, that he is fully God, fully man, and that he died as our substitute on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, so that the sin penalty is no longer an issue. The issue is, are we going to trust in Jesus' work on the cross as sufficient for our salvation? And the result of that is that we will receive the uh, imputation of righteousness as well as new life, and that guarantees that we have everlasting life with you and that we will live forever and ever uh, with you, serving you in the in eternity future. And so, Father, we pray that you would make these things clear to us and that we might be more conscientious of the involvements that we have in life and the things that we invest our time, money, and energy in. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.